Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Prod Squad podcast. Nick Cook here, joined, as always, by Brendan Colleton. Brendan, how's it going? Nick, you look like you're uh, you're podcasting from your house again, uh, and it looks dry, so I presume they've, they've finally solved whatever you had going on. Yes, yes, I am, I'm back home on, on better internet, which I've, I've learned over this is, I think I could live anywhere if it just had really good internet. <laughs> Maybe a sad statement, but yeah, back home, happy about it. No kitchen yet, so I'm, I'm uh, interested if anyone has advice for microwave-based <laughs> meals <laughs> that are yeah that are good but uh no no doing good and happy to happy to be home yeah i imagine it's got to make it got to make it easier to podcast when you have internet i don't know too much about it but i imagine so yeah my um uh, we should do maybe i don't know if it will fit in the retro today we got a few things but i should do one on wi-fi extenders because i have some real <laughs> real feelings about wi-fi extenders <laughs> over the last three months uh maybe a product space for someone to really disrupt just a wi-fi extender that works would be a good start yeah excellent well Nick, while you have been dealing with your your uh you know the, the joys of home ownership we'll call it uh i've outlined our next podcast for mm-hmm. you so i'll happy to take the reins today and help move us through but we can we can lead things off with the retro before we get into uh why uh why products fail or when features fail and uh, what PMs can do about it. But uh, I guess lead things off with the retro. What do, you, what do you got for this week? Okay, so other than uh, than being back, I know we have a couple big topics, but this one stuck out to me the other day. I feel like we normally notice great design in software, at least I do. But occasionally, a, you know, a physical product will really strike me. And this one is so simplistic, but we're obviously getting things set back up and unpacked. And command strips. You're 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 familiar with command strips, Brendan, as a homeowner who hangs things, or no? Yes, I understand what command strips are. I went to Target the other day to get some more command strips, and I uh, normally I think of them as just the two-sided Velcro ones. A whole aisle of the command strip skews. They have, and it was brilliant. They have literally taken the concept of adhesive Velcro that doesn't destroy your walls, and made. 50 different skews out of it like this one looks like it's better for your bathroom this one has a hook on it this one has two hooks on it and i sat there and i was like this is so stupid and then i bought like six different ones because i was like oh well this one i could hang two bags on like and then i was like wow i am the exact like we talk about like you know user personas and software development i am to the t the command strip audience i'm a hono homeowner I don't really want to drill in my walls if I don't have to. And I want something that's super simple. Boom. Listen, uh, the pain that they're solving there is a legitimate pain. Like as somebody oh, who yeah. spent last weekend painting and like doing some spackling mm-hmm. and trying to fill holes up, for some reason spackling, despite seemingly being the simplest aspect of carpentership that there is, is like an impossible thing as a layman to do in a way that looks good whatsoever. <laughs> Like it is for some reason so difficult, like even filling in just simple nail holes, like you too much, too little, like you always got to buy something and the spackle lasts like three weeks before you can never use it again. Cause it's like got, you know, mm-hmm. shit growing in it basically. So yeah, I totally get the appeal of, uh, of the command strips. Like I, I even use them for my like makeshift stand up desk. That's basically like a workbench with a crank. And I taped a command strip on the back so that I've got like, something to keep all my wires plugged into. Yeah. Have a, uh, you know, one of the surge protectors on the command strip. That's like mounting it right to the back of the desk. It's great. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It really just stuck, struck me of like, you guys solved one very acute problem and then you have found a way to monetize it like 30 different ways. And (laughs) I'm extremely impressed. Great job. I think it's 3M or whoever makes it, but Big, big command strip fan. So that was my one little one, but we got bigger things to talk about, Brendan, in the retro. One of yeah, those the, being uh, the acquisition. One, yeah, the big one I wanted to raise that I feel like we have to talk about is uh, Figma bought by Adobe, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think I was surprised by this, mostly because I didn't think of, and this is 
definitely my like PM in software bias here. I didn't think Adobe was such a big player anymore. <laughs> they just go buy Figma. Like I did not think that they were still like I think of Adobe. I think of like uh, Adobe Flex and like needing to sunset Flash and like all that going on. I did mm-hmm. not think of them as like the design studio uh, platform, which they clearly still very much are. And in that sense, Figma's right up their alley, but I don't think I've talked to a designer yet that's uh, that's pumped about this or excited <laughs> in any respect. Yeah, definitely. It, it, yeah, it, it is one, I agree with you. I didn't, I did not view Adobe in like that behemoth category. I just have so yeah. little exposure to their products other than like occasionally something's pre-installed that opens a PDF. <laughs> I feel like that's like the only, you know, um, but clearly they're huge. But yeah, I, it was interesting. I feel like Figma um, had sort of like gathered a following because it was it, it was very much like a bottom up um, adoption process. It seemed like, right? Like, you know, brow- browser based free to get started. So if you're a designer looking for an alternative or something that's a little better for collaboration, boom, you can take it and sort of got like a, a real following that way. Um, and now it feels like it was bought by like the big top down, <laughs> you know, right. enterprise player. And I'll be interested to see how, you know, people who use designers or the people who use Figma a lot and, and sort of um, came up with it feel about that that acquisition and and if they keep using the product yeah i think this is going to be a good i'm very interested to see like what the play ultimately is for like why they acquired it like is it to like you know integrate with other product offerings or is like figma just like a pure SaaS moneymaker that like adobe doesn't have as many of or any of uh you know i don't know too many and and therefore like you know, they're just going to keep it independent, keep it separate. You know, I feel like a lot of acquisitions are pitched that way, but it's really difficult to, to I think, do that, right? To like keep a company culture when you've acquired them and they're just fully being onboarded. Like there's just naturally friction created in that, in that sense. Oh yeah. First the logo changes and you're like, oh, it's a little more like an Adobe logo. <laughs> and then, yeah. the, you know, that, that Figma app's looking a little strange, a little red. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Then it's a slippery slope. Yeah, the first feature they launch that is like not up to par for Figma, like mm-hmm. not happy. I feel bad for their PMs, but it'll be immediately blamed on Adobe. A hundred percent. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, it, and now it, this is like this is a whole separate conversation, but this is like the there's like six six to ten companies that own everything. I mean, this is like Facebook buying Instagram all over again. Like, oh, that looks like competition you know yeah, um for sure so there's that whole side of it too but a podcast for a separate day maybe <laughs> yeah yeah for sure so let's uh we can we can jump into it from there so uh nick what, what we're going to talk about this week is when features fail so mm-hmm. uh you know i don't think any no, no pm's perfect right no product's perfect and i think even you and i have had our our share of uh product launches that have maybe not gone as smoothly as we would have wanted or features that haven't gotten the uptake uh, that we would have liked. And, and so what we can talk about today is, uh, one, how do, how do we even identify when something like that's happened? And then as a PM, you know, how to actually approach that type of challenge. And I guess the first question I'd have for you is, do you have an example for us? Like, it, are you, are you the perfect PM that you know, <laughs> has ever been out there? Every feature, a home run knocked out of the park, or do you have a, uh, one that, you know, you look back on, and you think, yeah, we, we could have done that differently. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I might have to be just super quiet this episode because <laughs> 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 I'm kind of batting a thousand now. Um, yeah, I was trying to think through a couple. Um, one, actually, you know, I think when you when you look at when you talk about failure, there's obviously like it, it and we'll get into this, like it failed, we're sunsetting it or it failed. We have to like reevaluate how we kind of miss. And one that just came to me. And I want to get your thoughts on this because we worked on it together was a good portion of our time spent at at logic manager was rebuilding, um, or, um, the application going from flash to a a modern, um, browser based interface. And the first thing we did was build this home screen, like the landing page. Um, and 
hindsight, I think ultimately that turned out to be a success, but for a while it was a, I think it was a failure, right? Like we, we had, we spent all this time crafting this really great landing page home screen that then linked you back to the old application um, and said like, no, come in through this new login process, go here, do this, you know, do this, jump through all these hoops just to click a link to then go back to the old application effectively. Like, (laughs) uh, you know, when I'm looking at the user flow in my head now, I'm like, this was probably doomed from the beginning. And, and ultimately, you know, the home screen was successful once we had, you know, users could start completing more of their job in the new application. But I do think that initial rollout, I would have, I would consider, uh, you know, failure such a strong word, but. Oh yeah. um, We, we totally overshot what was necessary <laughs> of a, a brand new home screen there. I mean, I think that was, obviously that was one both very early in our like PM 10 years, but I think we mm-hmm. at the time were so caught up in like, what is everything that this new application can be? And like, what is the dream home screen? And let's build as much of it as we can when like realistically, we should have been moving on to everything else that that new platform needed to do before you know, starting to optimize the home screen or like make it more flexible, make it more dynamic, things that it kind of was initially, but even honestly to its own detriment, right? Like, you know, for example, we allowed people to like reorganize and like change the <laughs> size and stuff like that, but we had no limitations on like what kind of sizes. And so like a lot of people made some really ugly home screens that I think ultimately were not, you know, the, the best uh, way to showcase the, this new platform that we were building. So yeah, we, we overshot that one big time. Yeah. And I remember checking the adoption, getting excited and being like, Oh, we're gonna, here comes the big bang. And then seeing like not that much traffic through it relative to our, our whole application. And then when we like talked to customers about it, it was like, Oh yeah, it's pretty cool. But I mean, the other 98% of my job, I still have to do in the other application. And I was like, oh yeah, right. Like I, I also would log into the, the old application, <laughs> you know, yeah. good point. So that was an early learning experience. Um, yeah. I think the other one that, that comes to mind on my end that um, we both played a role in is, you know, we, we had like the, the workflow engine, right. One of the probably mm-hmm. more powerful, most exciting parts of the product that we worked on. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I think we had an argument with the rest of the company about, right, especially the support team, was this uh, feature of the workflow engine called uh, an assignment query, where basically it was like you could take the same task and you could assign it dynamically to any number of different individuals based on a bunch of rules, uh, which was like pretty cool, right? If you had the same task and you had to go to a bunch of people, you could assign it out. Um, but there was also like a very obvious workaround for it, which is, you know, you could just have different branches of the workflow and mm-hmm. recreate the same task multiple times. Um, and this is one that like, I-, I thought was a really interesting use case or, or just test case, if you will, about what makes a feature valuable because it was providing value, right? Like there, there was utility to it. Um, the problem that I had with it and that we as a PM team had with it is that it was too complicated for customers to figure out how to use, right? Like it was too complicated to both have, you know, the ability to create branches of your workflow, but then even in an individual task layer have different logic or rules about who a specific step in that workflow would be assigned to when, you know, people just weren't thinking that way. Mm -hmm. And so it was one that I think, I don't even remember a customer ever complaining about after we actually retired it, like maybe, maybe one, but in large part, like we had a lot of internal pressure to keep it going because it did have utility. It did solve a problem. It just, you know, it, it suffered from whether or not people could figure out how to use it. Yeah, it, it really struggled with that usability test. And and this is making me think of, um, oh, what was the feature? Test, test groups? Test subgroups? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah which was another feature. I I won't go into the details of it, but those are really like, I feel like the hardest ones where they are giving value to some amount of customers. They are solving a problem, but do they really warrant continued investment support in, in our case, when we're rebuilding the application, right? There's a serious cost, right? It's not just leaving it there. It's actually functionally rebuilding it in the, 
the new application. Um, and those were, were uh, you know, the trickiest ones because the ones where it's just like no one is using this, it's like, well, okay, that's that's cr- that's really obvious. But it's that gray area where it's like some people are really happy with this, um, but it, you know, you could there's always the opportunity cost of what else you could be be working on or supporting. So I think I think that kind of transitions us nicely into like the first kind of question I have for you in in this topic, which is what actually constitutes failure, right? Like you launch a feature, you've got that kind of inter, you know, that initial period where you're learning so much about how it's being used, if people are using it and things like that. And I'd even push back on you a little bit that like lack of use of a feature indicates failure. Like, I actually think that, you know, I would consider that basically to be lack of use of a feature indicates you haven't learned a thing basically, right? Like it's, it's a discovery issue, uh, in a lot of cases, right? Like it's, it's not someone tried to use it and it didn't provide value and they're not going to pay for it. And they're going to like stop using it from here forward. Like if you actually never get any usage, you're basically no better off than you were. But I think that's almost sometimes one of the more easily remediated problems than the one that you talked about where, you do have people using it. Some people are getting value out of it, but for some reason or another, it's just not the direction you want to take your application. Yeah. And I, I think it, it a little bit is on like how you define like failure. It is sort of like a, a broad word, right? Well, like that's what we're doing uh, here, Nick. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, we have like 40 minutes left, so <laughs> hopefully we get there. Um, but I, I, I do agree in the sense that like um, you have to look at the pattern. I like, are people, are you getting a lot of engagement of people trying it and bouncing off it? That's a very different problem than I released this thing and no one cared about it, which, and just no one used it, which I agree is you're not really, you're not learning a lot there. Or I mean, maybe you're learning that the problem you're trying to solve just wasn't that big and customers weren't really looking for solutions for that whereas the if if you're getting people trying something out and then bouncing off of it and like giving you feedback about it you at least likely know that you're trying to solve the right problem you just maybe missed a little bit on the solution and you could iterate on that and and turn like a failure into success i think more easily that way yeah i mean i think i think from my standpoint right there's like a few different I guess, levels of metrics that I would consider when I first am am trying to gauge like the success of a particular feature that we've launched. Obviously usage is, I think usage is sort of a, uh, a threshold test to indicate whether or not you have anything to learn from this, right? Like if you're truly getting no engagement with a feature, like I would, I would probably argue in almost every instance in that case that like that's not a feature worth throwing away at that point like you just don't know enough yet if you haven't even gotten users to click into it unless you've like truly developed something that nobody's interested in at all with your application which would be like the rarest of instances Mm -hmm. Um, but like whether it's not a compelling enough call to action whether it's not like you place the button in the wrong location or it's hidden behind too many menus like there's a lot of things that you can do to modify an instance where you're just not seeing any usage so that you at minimum like force users through that flow so that you can actually learn from their behavior once they hit that flow. So I, I almost would argue that usage is never like an indicator of the failure of the like possibility of a feature or, or the value it could provide a customer. Um, it's more, more along the lines of you know, whether or not you did a good job design wise, like getting people into the the flow that you were seeking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think I agree with that overall. I think there is something to like, you know, u- ultimately you do, there is a state where usage is, is important. And I think there's a difference. Yeah, I, I think there's a difference between no one has gotten to it at all and people are getting to it and and bouncing off of it continually. And sure. Yeah. So I think you could separate those are different, like again, usage kind of broad. So those are maybe two different challenges there. But um, I think another one when we're talking about how to measure success is uh, revenue. I mean, money, everything comes down to dollars. Right. Um, And I think this can be tough in, especially in SaaS products 
where some features have direct revenue implications, right? If they're upsells, that's a pretty clear, right? If they, you know, move you into get you, uh, your customer to purchase another module or something like that. Um, if they directly led to expansion, you know, if you have maybe a seat based model, um, that's a great sign. But I do think, uh, you know, and probably maybe a whole nother podcast episode, but there, I think there's a really, tr- something I struggle with at least is how do you, from a revenue basis, evaluate those features who are just incrementally improving your product, but are not directly pulling dollars out of the customer. You know what I'm trying to say? Um, yeah. Basically like how much revenue do you attribute to exactly. a specific feature when it is part of an entire product set, right? Like an entire product line. And yeah, I totally agree with you that that's probably one of the parts that makes revenue trickiest. I, I, I do think, you know, if it's one that you can pin additional revenue onto a feature, like you see a clear uptick in retention rates or the performance of sales or, you know, how you're doing in a particular area, uh, you know, in terms of net new customers or, you know, you can pin that on a release or a particular feature, uh, you're golden in terms of like demonstrating its value, right? Like money, money talks, uh, to, to mm-hmm. senior executives. Um, but it's also probably one that, especially in complex products, like can take, can take the longest to kind of flesh itself out. Um, you know, you might, you might not have the liberty of collecting like three years worth of revenue data, Right to uh, to mm-hmm. determine how a particular feature ultimately impacted the long term trends, and when you have like seasonality to different metrics, and companies are changing a lot of different things quarter over quarter, I think it was always hard to get like an apples to apples revenue figure that I felt confident in like tying to a feature that we had released. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think where we landed. Uh, and was like one level of abstraction, right? Where we had sort of the assertion that, uh, you know, at, at Logic Manager, that there was, we had these different areas of the application. They weren't truly modules, but they're sort of use cases. And if a customer, the more use cases a customer adopted, the stickier they were, and generally the more licenses they would have. And so we kind of always held up the like could we attribute adoption of a new use case to a feature or a set of features and like that was like a metric metric of success for us which was like indirectly revenue um but was like a little easier for us to to measure based on the the model yeah now that makes sense and and i will say the one thing that revenue also leaves out are you know, sometimes some of these other other business models, right? Like, uh, you know, I'm I'm personally finding myself uh, somewhat surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, because I I I knew what we were building when I when I joined Viva, uh, in a in the position of being a you know kind of a transitionary business to consumer type PM with the type of product that we're building, right? It's sort of a mm. like a B two B two C hybrid model um, as we build this social platform for clinical researchers. Um, but we are currently in like this freemium model where like none of our users are, are paying or have the opportunity to pay, right? Like they basically pay us with their attention and their, their time and engaging with the platform, which also I think lends a layer of kind of complexity to, to what we're building. And so for us, we have to sort of think about it, I think more in terms of like what our goals are quarter over quarter um, you know, six months over six month period about what we're trying to improve about our application and how we can ultimately measure that with the, you know, very nascent features that we introduce. And fortunately for us, we don't have very many features. So easier to uh, keep an eye out on, you know, what, what we're introducing for somebody and how, how compelling that is to our, our early user base here. Yeah, I think that's a great point. There's like other goals a company has, right? That and 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 maybe even you know I don't know. I just thought of uh, Google Maps as a, an example of you know their goal is probably to get me to share my location as much as possible through <laughs> Google Maps, right? There's no money that I'm exchanging. The you know the the cost I'm paying is like my data and everything. Um, so yeah, that that's a a good point too of like 
you know, revenue generally is 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 the the goal or, or or one of the most important ones. But there are likely other objectives that a company a company has um, that uh, are, aren't directly tied to revenue. You know, I think about High Marley, and and we have an offering around coaching and insights based on um, the messages and the more just conversations we can have flowing through our platform make that machine learning and make those insights so much better so you know there's an incentive for us to just get more conversations happening in the platform and and obviously that will but typically eventually leads to to more revenue but that also has the benefits of of improving our our models um along the way all right so we've got like a few i think i think generally what that boils down to right is what did you learn after a particular feature was launched right like how much we talked a lot about in our mvp episode about having sort of a testable hypothesis right about what uh what type of value that you're going to be delivering with a particular feature and i think that's i think a lot of what we're ultimately getting at especially with what you mentioned right the other goals a company has um mm -hmm. with what's ultimately being launched um when you do launch a feature and you see that you know maybe there's a, a tremendous lack of usage right or the sales team saying this isn't exciting anybody and uh you have to take some type of action um I think what we what I want to get into next is a little bit of of how maybe to think about some of the problems that might be sort of weighing your feature down and and what you can ultimately do about that. Is there a is there a place that you find that you start once you've you know gotten some initial reports back or gotten some feedback back that hey this this isn't really landing with your customers? Yeah, I think the first thing is when you get the feedback back is looking at, okay, am I going to keep investing in this? Which I think is like, um, there's sort of can be a sunk cost fallacy where you've built this thing. You probably have some pro like as a product manager, you want to you're going to be a champion for the thing that, that you're building, right. And putting it out there. And I actually think the first thing you should do is take a step back and say like, should we keep investing in this? Um, which is, you know, uh, not an easy thing to do. Um, I'm actually thinking of a, a feature at Hyde Marley that we're sort of having these discussions around right now. Um, and, and it's interesting. And I think we've gotten the feedback of how we could improve it. It's unclear if we made those improvements, how much more adoption or revenue it would generate. Um, so I think that's sort of the first gate is like, are we continuing down this, this path? Oh, I, I think that's a great point too, because I, I think it's really, really easy to fall into that. Um, mm -hmm. one, because you've definitely invested a lot of time and thought into, to what you ultimately launched, but that can even play a role for features that have been around a really long time too, right? Oh, like yeah. oftentimes it's just that you've got like your marquee or established customers and maybe it's just a few of them, right? Like that's why you're thinking about this to begin with that have just used this feature because that's what was there when you launched V 1.1 of the product. <laughs> so, um, but there are like better ways to operate now, but customers, you know, are fickle and they don't change to the newest things, right? They, they go with what they know. Uh, yeah. And so you're sitting there with, you know, brand new ways of doing something that are just obviously easier to anybody that you show it to, but you know, you've got a lot of, a lot of inertia kind of on this old feature and, and people mm -hmm. follow it. Um, but I totally agree. I mean, I think you need to look at sort of every unit of additional work that your, you know, uh, your development team can put in and treat them equally in terms of the value that they would ultimately deliver, right? Whether that's a, a brand new feature that they'd be delivering or, you know, iterating on or changing something you've you've previously thought about, um, and so that that calculation ultimately you shouldn't really account for how much you've how much time you've spent on something uh, previously. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I always think um, like the saying like, oh, just this is the way we've always done it is <laughs> is never the answer to any question. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
but uh, so I guess making the assumption that we're gonna, I think, <laughs> so we can have a rest of the episode, we'll assume <laughs> that we're <laughs> that we we want to work on the feature that was a failure to make make it successful, um, and I think you want to do like a root cause analysis and take it back to a lot of the risks that you tried to identify and mitigate when you were building the feature that maybe you missed on. Um, and those generally being usability, business viability, value, and feasibility. Although feasibility, I think, uh, and we can go go to each one if we want. That one is, you know, maybe you've crossed that bridge already, like it was feasible to build. Um, but those are generally the four you're looking for in advance of, of building a feature. So I think it's good to go back to those and say, okay, we thought we mitigated these or had some um, assumptions around them maybe they were incorrect. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, uh, I forget where you, you found it, but you had an awesome like flow chart once that was like all the gates that you have to pass through when you're mm. launching and deciding to build a feature, right? Like, will somebody pay for it? Will somebody yeah. be able to, like, can we actually build it? Will someone figure out how to use it? And that's really what these risks are about, right? Cause ultimately I think when you find a feature is falling flat, uh, like these are, these are the reasons why, right? Like it's, it's very rarely something new that, you know, uh, there wasn't some ability to, to think about ahead of time. And that's part of the reason why we put so much emphasis on like what an MVP is and uh, the types of product discovery that you need to do because it's about mitigating these risks. But everybody's fallible, right? We all make mistakes and and I think responding to it and getting on top of it quickly can be, can be really helpful in salvaging some of these products. So the first one I wanna talk about is usability risk, right? Uh, users just can't figure out how to use it. Um, and this is one that I think is, it goes back to that e example we brought up, right? Where, uh, yeah, internally, right? We had some internal, you know, customer support or consultants that were, you know, really liked the feature because it was a, uh, you know, something that allowed them to be better at their jobs and accomplish very complex tasks. But it was totally unrealistic for us to expect customers to have the same degree of expertise as our internal staff. And mm -hmm. that's a usability risk, right? I mean, uh, it, I think it, it brings to mind one of my favorite sort of sayings that I've heard repeated that you have as many features as your customers know mm -hmm. how to use, not <laughs> as are listed in your user guide. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, usability risk, right? If someone can't figure out how to use it, that's one of the primary uh, problems that I think customers run into over and over again, um, you know, with very complex applications. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I do think as I'm looking through this list of the different risks, this one I think is probably the easiest one to solve out of all of them. Or like, you know, if you're assuming you were able to build the thing, it's it delivers value and there's a market for it. If you just made it a little too tough to use, um, I, I think that's a pretty solvable problem that you can work with design to get to and and i think sometimes this actually manifests you know i'm a big fan of the uh the mvp um and i've heard people want to call it like um some people want to call it maybe minimum lovable or something because sometimes minimum viable you can really strip it down and it's not really user friendly in a way that someone would want to adopt it so sometimes it's just getting that second iteration under the belt. Sometimes it's over design as well. Um, I think I generally lean towards the, <laughs> the under design side. Um, but I think this, this one for sure is something, um, you know, you can get with design on and, and iterate through. The one thing I'll say about this one though, is that like, I think people oftentimes miss the trade-off that you make when you decide that usability or simplicity is going to be something that you prioritize as an application like that naturally comes at the expense of feature richness and if and if you as i think many people have learned right apple is fantastic at this in a lot of respects um if you have learned or if you decide that you want to prioritize simplicity as an application i think you have to be thinking about constantly sunsetting features and removing features because i don't think feature richness and simplicity like are compatible uh, long term right like they might you might get away with introducing incrementally more and more features early on but if you have a pretty mature application uh, it's very very quickly I think going to get out of hand to consistently think that you can implement 
endless new features and keep them as simple as, you know, features one through three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, this is making me realize we should do an episode on product principles. What I'm about to say, but I remember <laughs> one of the jot it down, uh, but I remember one of the principles we had at logic manager was all business logic can be configured by business users. And I, we kept holding that up and that's actually how the assignment query logic you referred to earlier in the episode got cut because a business user could not realistically figure out how to use that. Like our support team could set it up for them, but it just wasn't, it failed the usability test over and over again. And so I agree and that. And you don't have to like you, you have to know who your users are and what is, what usability means to, to them, to those personas. Um, but I, I remember really that I think when we made that decision and we were able to push every feature against that, that test, um, I think it really helped create like a, a, you know, a lot better usability and like a cohesive experience throughout the application. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I agree with you in the sense that like, this is one that you probably see just examples of all over the place. Like, I think I, I was doing a bit of research and the most common example I saw referred to for this one was uh, early 2000s, right? Early internet days. Uh, I think everybody, at least our generation, right? Super familiar with AIM uh, and, and like the simplicity of chat plus a buddy list. And apparently AIM at the time, when it initially launched was like actually a, like a, a minority of the market and ICQ was one of the mm. kind of like large market, uh, like they had the largest market at first, but uh, they fell victim to sort of like incrementally continually introducing new features, whether it was like ads or support for different like video games that were embedded in the chat feature. Uh, they had like phone numbers for different users that you could use to kind of like, and this is early days of cell phone <laughs> going on. Um, but uh, ultimately, we're sort of blown out of the water by you know AOL and Instant Messenger by just having like a simple you have a buddy list you can chat with them you know have at it uh, and you know users naturally sort of left ICQ as it got more complex. I talking about this made me think of I feel like this is how Zoom won the web the video chat market right like. WebEx and even Skype and all these other ones, right? I want to get a link. I want to click the link and then I'm video chatting with someone. And right. that was like zoom, like held, held to that core. They have, they have added unnecessary complexity. Now I don't know what all the <laughs> buttons on the bottom are whiteboard apps, no idea, but I can still get a link, click a link, get in a video chat. Um, so yeah, that, that was just another example that, that jumped out to me. Awesome. So the next risk I want to talk about is uh, business viability risk or basically market risk. And this basically refers to uh, the situation where you have like basically not assessed your user base in the way or, or understood them, maybe in the way that uh, you thought you did when you went and launched a feature. Um, basically, your users aren't the type of users that would appreciate this feature. And I think this one can be really tough, especially as companies are trying to like expand their user base, right? And break into like new verticals or new industries that they wanna actually, you know, get feedback from or try to expand to. Um, and like, I, I almost think it's one that is maybe more acceptable as a failure, right? Like, cause you have to grow and evolve as a company. And so like, you have to take risks here in a lot of senses in, in terms of trying to capture new business. And that will very naturally lead to a lot of like market risk for whether, you know, your existing customer base and the people that are in tune with your business are going to be the type of users that are, will appreciate what you're building. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a, actually a very recent example of this, of a, of a huge feature that failed, not even a feature, a product. I don't know if you're familiar with it. And I, th and I think it failed to the, for this reason. Uh, have you ever heard of Google Stadia? Uh, the Google product, the Stadia video game console. Vaguely, you'll have to, yeah. you'll have to enlighten me. So Google released the Stadia it's years ago now, and it was a, a video game platform, but for streaming games. So they 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 wanted to kind of you know it's it's a market you know predominantly owned by Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo. Those are the major console makers, and they wanted to come in, but 
they do away with discs, do away with hard drives that you're all going to, you're going to stream everything. And as someone who plays games and often buys unnecessary (laughs) (laughs) paraphernalia that I won't actually use, uh, I didn't even, uh, I, you know, I just kind of had no interest in it. And when you think about it, it was a really weird product choice because the, it required someone to have extremely fast internet and be interested in fronting a good amount of money for this device. And they had a limited catalog of games. So, you know, you have to maybe not care so much about the selection of games that you, you have access to. And when you draw that Venn diagram, you're like, who does that leave? Cause everyone yeah. with money and really fast internet who is passionate about games is going to have another console that they're they're using so like what problem are you actually solving here um and they just recently as of this week or last week announced the shutdown in 2023 they are they're killing the product just a few years after its launch and i think that is like if i i I don't think i think the tech worked you know i I wasn't particularly close to it you know it was you know usable feasible all those other things i just they i think they failed to find a market for the uh the business viability test and it's so interesting that like you reference Google as the the example there, because part of me thinks that that's, you know, almost the the positive about how these enormous companies like end up capturing such a large market share is they just continually, you know, launch these new products to try and capture like a new segment of it. Like they've Google's done that a ton, right? Like I, mm-hmm. I even remember doing some research for this episode. They had a, I think it was called Google Wave. And it was like a Slack competitor very early in the day, but the concept of it was like a like an uber transparent chat. Like I think they even let you see as the user was typing, like what they were typing to you. You know how people like you know you get yeah. like the, the three dots today that are letting you yeah. know it's coming. Uh, and this was like a level beyond that, right? Which in retrospect seems very obvious that nobody would actually want that, right? Like I. I spend a lot of time crafting my text messages to yeah. keep them to me before I, you know, I actually get them the, out. And the dots world. show up, they go away, they show up again, they go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give me that, please. All right. That's important <laughs> to me. Uh, <laughs> so that's the reason why we're not talking on the phone, right? Is that I can, uh, <laughs> yeah. I can chat. Um, but it ultimately results in, in some of these companies like really, uh, I think, expanding into brand new markets where they might not have even realized that they had you know, the, the capacity to, to penetrate. Um, but you know, like we said, it, it's not always successful and it's something that you have to recognize if it's not successful that, Hey, people are just not looking to your company, your product to solve that particular problem. Mm-hmm. All right. So next up out of our, our four risks is value risk, which I think is, I think it gets back to that, that, kind of metric we talked about of revenue, right? Because uh, value risk is about whether what you've developed is valuable enough for anyone to pay for it. And the uh, the example I had for this one, I'm curious if you have others, mm. was uh, the Microsoft Zune, which was mm. you know, basically launched. Throwback. Yeah, big time throwback. And I actually remember this because I'm pretty sure my parents gave me one. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, they didn't love you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It was like a Christmas gift. It was like, ah, this kid's not nice enough to get an iPod. Uh, you got Zoomed. Yeah, I got Zoomed. Um, and it was it was in the days where like, I don't even think people knew about other MP3 players that weren't iPods. But Microsoft clearly saw, you know, Apple had this market um, for you know, MB3 players, right? Portable music players. And they were going to compete with the iPod with the, the Microsoft Zune. And um, they basically launched what seemed to be another iPod. <laughs> like it was, mm-hmm. it was effectively the exact same thing, you know, square platform, uh, like a touchscreen interface. It was uh, like basically in many, many ways in not different from the iPod. And when you read now what people in, on the product side and on like the leadership side, like the reason why it totally failed and it did, like it failed spectacularly. There was no Zune V2, like it never, <laughs> never got traction. They basically said that, you know, they didn't take enough risks. They didn't try to make anything that would give somebody a reason to buy the Zune over an iPod. They didn't add enough value to it. Um, so it was just basically an alternative to an existing product. 
And from like a value standpoint, like there's just not enough there basically. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's the, the reason I bring this up is because it's maybe a little bit of a different way of thinking about value in that, you know, it depends a little bit on the type of product you're, you're launching, right? If this something is truly innovative, trying to solve a problem that hasn't been solved, uh, you probably have a little bit more leeway in, in what somebody will pay for it than if you're entering a very mature market where you actually have to exceed the benchmark to, to basically solve this value risk challenge. Yeah, it, uh, that is such a great point. That's what I was going to double click on and say, I think it's been said there's like the 10x problem where, or the 10x rule, where if you are, you know, entering um, with incumbents, you have to be 10x more valuable than they are to get someone to spend their time or spend their money to transition over to you. Um, so yeah, I do think it really depends on, are you creating, are you adding value where there wasn't any before, or are you trying to be more valuable than something that already exists? And the latter is, um, obviously a lot more, more challenging because you basically have the burden of proof is like, okay, why should I use you over the, the thing I'm already using? And this is one getting back to like how solvable a problem this is. I think if you're in an instance where like you haven't developed a valuable enough feature, like you're almost always back at square one, right? Like in terms of what, like you need to be comparing it against everything else that you could potentially invest in because that's, that's a pretty difficult challenge to solve. Yeah. This one always feels to me. You you ever, um, when you're on customer interviews, have someone say like, oh, the, oh yeah, that would be cool. Or that would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> that's like immediately failing the value test. <laughs> that's what I think. Like every feature that falls in this bucket probably got a, that would be cool on a handful of interviews, like, um, which is usually just not enough to, to cut it. Yeah. Uh, and then the last one to maybe talk about, and again, I think this one's probably the simplest we'll get, we'll get through it quickly is the, the feasibility risk. And I agree with you. Like usually you've solved this problem after you've created an, an MVP, but I will also add that, like, I think it's one that, uh, like brings up the very interesting, um, concept of when to bail on a feature and should you ever bail even before it's launched because the effort that you thought it would took to launch ends up scaling dramatically. And I did have a really, I think, good example of this from a, a company we've all heard of, Apple, mm. um, where they had, a, I think it was called the Apple Air Power, and it was basically a charging mat that they were trying to design for all of their products, right? Like you could put an iPhone on it, you could put a watch on it, and the idea was it would you know, charge whatever Apple products you had. And they basically nixed it before it ever hit the market because in order for it to hit their like standards for simplicity and usability and a lot of these other things that we were talked about, like it was going to just be incredibly complex, incredibly expensive to develop. And so it never actually went to market. And I just thought this was a good example of, you know, on a more micro scale, there's always opportunities to back out, right? Like I think there are instances where as a PM, like you jump in, you get the spikes done, right? You get the research tickets done, you start on the back end. And then something just explodes on you in terms of like how much effort it'll actually take. And those are opportunities to rethink about whether or not that's what you should be working on. Right. And like you, it's better to kill the feature then than it is to take it to market after you've spent X amount of money on it. If, if you don't actually think it'll succeed once it gets there. Yeah. I think the, one of the greatest expenses to a software company is spending money building the incorrect thing or building things that no one will use. So you should never be afraid and, and it can be scary. And I think I was thinking, even as we talked about like the word failure, right? It feels so bad coming off your mouth, right? But like you want to fail fast and fail with minimum investment. <laughs> like that's how I would look at it. And so, yeah, if you, you shouldn't just keep keep building or keep trying or, or, you know, say, Oh, well, we're this far down. We, we wrote the user stories and we planned out a few sprints and Oh man, turns out it's going to be twice as much work to build. Right? Like, okay, well then let's, let's just put the brakes on it really quick. Cause it was, you know, valuable enough to build it, um, with, you know, a certain degree of effort that doesn't necessarily 
still hold true if the effort doubles or triples um and so i think yeah always just having that critical eye and being okay being okay with failure is probably an underlying theme of this this episode yeah i think uh being okay with failure right being okay sunsetting features i think is a a big takeaway right like we all want to build simple applications i think customers demand that in 2022 uh and then I think the other thing that you mentioned that uh you know, we can point people towards, I think it's sort of the answer to a lot of these challenges is, is the MVP, right? Like if you're actually building minimal viable products, I think those are also, you know, the way to mitigate a lot of this risk. Cause like you said, if, if you've actually just launched an MVP, the idea was to learn whether or not your customers find it as appealing as you do internally. Right. And, and whether or not it's worth continuing to invest in. Um, and so if you can limit your exposure that way, I think it uh it saves saves a lot of your risk there. Um, mm-hmm. Nick, I think we did a good job capturing a lot of the ways features fail. Good, some good examples in there. Anything else you got to to add today? No, no. I just one um, as you were talking, one quote stood out to me that I heard uh, uh, from a, a PM, and they said, "I've never felt like I was finished working on something before I had to stop working on it." for one reason or another, whether it was like, and I just feel like that's a good mindset to have as a product manager, whether that's because, hey, this just didn't work and we can't keep going down this path and we have to, you know, nix it or, um, hey, this is valuable. It's just not the most valuable thing. Um, just just kind of, you know, we can't do perfection here. We You can kind of work on something forever, but sometimes it's best to maybe step away from it um, and take your learnings and invest them in, in something else. Oh, and it'll, it'll hurt every time too. Like you, Mm -hmm. like I, I'd say like, don't develop attachments to these, these features, but I know that's unrealistic. Like you will, and you just have to be, (laughs) you just have to let it go sometimes. Yeah. Spend a bunch of time getting really close to the problem, its users and advocating for it, but then be ready to step away if it doesn't work. It's easy, right? (laughs) Super easy. That's why anybody can do it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, thanks, Nick. I think first off, glad to have you back in the house. Glad to have you back some solid Wi-Fi. Uh, Thank you. uh, It was was good to get back behind the mic here. Uh, But I think that's all we got for today. Like and subscribe. Let us know, mm. you know, what we could have done better, uh, what what we can improve on. We've gotten some great ideas for episodes from listeners, and so please continue sending those our way. You know, that's the easiest way for us to know uh, what we should talk about week to week. But uh, again, been an absolute pleasure. So thanks for listening. Hopefully, this podcast wasn't a failure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. On that note, take care, everybody. Squat out. We'll